check this. There it is. If you'll take your bulletins, you'll see our reading for today. Um, we come to the end of our Job series. This is our, our eighth message in this series, and uh, this has been amazing for me. Uh, some of you uh, said in the early part of this series, okay, you, you're teaching us from Job, so all hell's going to break loose in our lives. And some of you might be able to say, well, it felt a little like that. But I asked the Lord, I, I said, Lord, uh, what do I say to those who say that? He said, tell them to give thanks for the, the teaching because I knew what was coming in their lives. A little bit different perspective. That this series on Job would prepare you for what was going to happen. So I find the Lord to be very timely in his word. And so we, we close this out. I, I want us to read together Job's restoration. Okay, so this is chapter 42, verses 7 through 12. Let's read this together out loud. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves and my servant Job shall pray for you for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite, went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. <laughs> I have some friends uh, that never read a book till they have read the first chapter and the last chapter. Because they say they're not going to read the whole book if the ending's not good. And they're not going to read the book if the beginning isn't exciting. If you, read the, if you read the book of Job like that, you will miss everything. And you'll have a simplistic kind of pat sort of answer for your suffering. So you'll begin with chapter 1 or 2 and say, well, Satan caused it. So if I can just deal with Satan, then I can get to the end of the book and I can get my double portion. Because if you look at the restoration of Job, he, gets, he has twice as many camels. He has twice as many donkeys. He has twice as many, you know, of, of everything. So, I mean, if you read the first and the last, you're like, I want to get to the last really quickly. So you look at the first and you say, it's just about Satan and dealing with Satan. And that's the problem is there are a lot of Christians, that's how they look at life. They just want to bind Satan. They just want to loose, you know, they just want to deal 
with spiritual warfare without dealing with their theology first. Job does not get to restoration until he has experienced how big God is. Let me, let me refresh your memory a little bit. When God speaks to Job, Job's been saying for 36 chapters, I want you to answer me, God. I want you to explain yourself to me, God. I want you to vindicate me and show that I'm right, God. When God answers, he answers in a storm. Here's what I want you to understand. When God reveals himself, God is the biggest storm you have ever faced. See, Job was tempted to believe that the storms of his life were losing his children. He was tempted to believe that losing his health, losing his wealth. He was tempted to believe that losing the favor of his wife was the storm. See, if you'll, if you'll listen to me this morning, you'll realize that when you lose your ability financially, you tend to think, that's a storm. When you lose your strength and your health, you think, that's a storm. And all of us get all worked up over your storm. But you'll never really be able to face the little storms until you know the big storm. Now, some of you have had experience with storms. Sandy was quite a storm. It's called a superstorm. Have you ever, do you notice that when a storm comes, you can kind of protect some things, but you can't control the storm? When I was a kid, we lived in, uh, the, off the Gulf Coast, about three miles from the beach in Gulfport, and Camille, Hurricane Camille, decided to pay us a visit. It was supposed to go to Mexico, it was supposed to go to Texas, but right on a Sunday morning, it took a turn and came right from my house. And uh, my mother was a freak about hurricanes. She had had plywood cut the size of every window in our house. And so... Even though it was supposed to go to Mexico, she made my father get up and put the plywood on every window. So we lived kind of uh, out in a not-so-populated area, and so the storm came. And it was 212-mile-an-hour winds. The storm surge was at least 33 feet above the seawall. There are houses they never found again. There are people they never found again because of the storm surge. It's so interesting. Not only was there the issue of the wind, but the storm spawned a hundred tornadoes. The, the property across the street from where I lived had a, a trailer on it, and when we got up the next morning after the storm, the trailer had been put, picked up and dropped on its head. So you could tell it wasn't from the hurricane. It was from the tornado. So the tornado had passed right by our house. I remember thinking as a kid, okay, Mom covered all the windows, but we, our houses in the south didn't have basements. They were put up on piers, you know, for the water and stuff. And so because it's so hot in the south, they were put up on piers so you get a little breeze going. And it wasn't so hot in the house. I say, we could have been like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz and just been, <laughs> just the wind just take us on, you know, right to glory. But, uh, but if you've ever, ever encountered a true, you know, big storm, you realize there's only so much you can do. You don't have control over it. You don't have power over it. And see, how does God reveal himself in the midst of Job's suffering? He reveals himself as the real storm. And he speaks 
in the midst of what Job thought was his real storm. But he's trying to give Job perspective. We see it in the, in the New Testament as well. In, uh, in the example of the boat stories in the Gospels, one of the boat stories, Jesus tells his disciples to get on the boat. He's going to take them to the other side. And Jesus goes downstairs of the boat and falls asleep. Well, these, at least four of them were professional fishermen. They had spent their whole life on that lake. They knew storms. And they said with their professional opinion, this storm is the worst storm we've ever seen because we're going to die. Now, I mean, I think it was a demonic storm. If you look at particularly the characteristics of the storm and then how Jesus deals with the storm, you'll see that he rebukes the storm like he rebuked demons. But here's what I want you to, I want you to understand. The disciples are scared to death of the storm. You got that piece? But they didn't realize the storm was asleep in the boat. Okay? And they come to him and they say, Master, don't you care that we're perishing? Now listen carefully to that. They're not asking him to save them. Because they'd say, won't you do anything about the storm? They're saying, don't you care? They're saying, won't you enter into our anxiety? Won't you enter into our worry? Won't you be as worried as we are? In other words, if, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but those of you who are anxiety people in here, and those of you who are angry people in here, you're tornadoes. And you go, why won't anybody enter into my tornado? Why aren't you as angry at them as I am? Why aren't you as worried about this as I am? I must be the only one who really cares. Because that's what the disciples are saying. And they're basically saying, Jesus, you don't care. They're not thinking he can do anything about the storm. They just want him to be as miserable as they are while they die. (laughs) And that usually is the case with most people. I just want you to feel the pain that I feel about responsibility. I just want you to feel like like you care as much about this as I do. that You're as mad at that person as I am mad at that person. So we all live in many ways in storms and want other people to care about our storms. But, you know, if you're a tornado, who can get near you? I mean, if you're an angry tornado, an anxious tornado, who can really get in there and not be hurt by you? Come on, that's pretty good. (laughs) The ones who live with tornadoes are going, yeah, that's real good. And the ones who are tornadoes are going, I don't get his point. (laughs) Well, the disciples got his point. Because when he woke up, he said, you have little faith. And he spoke to the storm and he said, I rebuke you, be still. Just like a demon. And the storm dissipated, died, quit. Well, I know that they didn't understand very well what they were dealing with because after he rebuked the storm, they were more afraid of Jesus than they were the storm. They didn't fall in love with Jesus at that moment. They didn't become followers really of Jesus at that moment, but suddenly they realized the real storm is the one we're traveling with right now. 
And I really believe that the book of Job teaches us that you will not be restored what you have lost until you understand who it is you're dealing with. Because what happens in this is, is Job begins to understand how to respond to, this, to the storm. He begins to realize that the God who is revealing himself through the storm is really bigger than he expected him to be. See, he's been demanding him to talk to him like a man. He's been saying, you deserve, you, I deserve answers from you. You must explain yourself. You must do God what is right. You don't talk to the storm that way. You see, he, he thinks everything else is the storm. And suddenly God reveals himself and speaks to him. And God is the storm. And what happens is he begins to repent. He's not repenting from sinful behavior. He's not repenting from sinful actions. He's repenting from his need for explanation. He's retracting his desire that God would make him look good. And he's beginning to understand as he deals with God that his needs are different than he expected them to be. I am convinced, and this is going to sound mean, and many of you I don't know because you're new here, and I am mean every week, so it's okay. (laughs) But I'm convinced of this. Your arrogance and stubbornness, your hard-headedness, your thoughts that God answers to you, that he's supposed to be on your team and your agenda, are keeping you from incredible blessing. Because you're looking for what you don't need. And when you look to him and you find him, you find what you need. But your your understanding of your needs has to change. You see, I mean, if, if you give someone something that you know they need, but they don't know they need, they don't appreciate it. You think about Christmas with your own kids. I remember one of the first Christmases that my, my son, my oldest, uh, you know, he was aware, I think he was three or so, and he got every Star Wars toy imaginable. And he would open up and he'd go, just what I needed. And I'm like, yeah, Yoda, I don't think so, you know. But then some of the family gave him pajamas, underwear, socks. He's like, okay, thanks. And dads go, just what we needed. You know, it's all about perspective. And what happens is when you really encounter God, you realize you didn't even know what you needed. Especially when you encounter God in the storm. Because you know what he says to you in the storm? I love you. I accept you. You're safe. You're like, no, I'm not. This storm, we're dying as we're perishing. No, I'm the storm. And I'm the storm who's with you. I'm the storm in the boat. And suddenly you realize, I really do have what I need. You see, Jesus' words don't make sense until you meet and encounter the manifest presence of Christ. He said, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. And then he says, all other things will be added to you. So what happens is we seek the other things... And then are angry with God because all they do is bring storms. 
And he says, seek the real storm, my righteousness, my kingdom. The kingdom of God is an irresistible storm that's coming. And you're a part of it if you're a believer. You look in all the prophecies in the Old Testament. It's the, you know, though, though it's the stone that the builders rejected, it's become the cornerstone. Jesus has become the cornerstone of a building that no one can demolish. And although other empires have risen and fallen, the kingdom of God is ever increasing and ever growing. He's the storm. And truthfully, as tired as you may be today from all the storms of your life, often it is because you have disconnected from what you really need to try to fight for what you really don't need. See, somehow Job gets it. He says, God as the storm is enough for me. God as the one who loves me and speaks love and acceptance to me, that's enough for me. So he trains he changes his demand. He retracts his demand. And we see that what happens is, as Job is responding to God, the healing starts taking place. It's an interesting thing that if you really, really know what it is to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and you really know what it is to be on, on mission with Jesus, you realize you don't ever have to defend yourself. It's such an interesting concept, but if you're right... You don't need a defense. And if you're wrong, you don't have a defense. But in this case, because Job was right, God himself spoke his defense. God speaks to his friends, and he says, you've not spoken of me what is right, but Job has. And then he does something extraordinary. He gives their well-being over to Job. There's only three times that I know of, you might find others, but there's only three that I know of where God gives the well-being and the future of a group over to somebody else. That's Moses, Job, and Jesus. Now, I'll tell you why he gives others well-being over to Job and Moses and Jesus. It's because he knew what they would do with the others. The reason he doesn't give your enemies over to you is he knows what you would do with them. You know, your prayer would be kind of like a mighty python prayer. Oh, Lord, take down this holy hand grenade and cause it to smite us them. <laughs> he doesn't give that to us when he knows that we will not forgive. You have to understand that restoration is not revenge. Restoration is not vengeance. There's nothing sweet about revenge. It doesn't give you back what you've lost. And it means that you stay on the hook with that person for the rest of your life. It's important that you understand that he doesn't even begin to see any return. He doesn't see any restoration until he forgives his friends. Nothing happens until Job prays for his friends. And if you've ever prayed for someone you hate, Bless them doesn't come out of your mouth. No. Doesn't come out of your mouth. It's only when you've forgiven your enemy that you can bless them. Because all you care about is, God, please, please get them. I taught a fifth grade Bible class in a prep school uh, in Jackson, Mississippi, when I was in seminary. And this 
the biggest kid in the class, and his, I think his name was T-Bone or something like that, you know, and, uh, or T-Boy or whatever it was. He's the biggest kid in the class, and I'm teaching on forgiveness, and he looks at me and says, you mean I have to forget the peop- forgive the people and I don't get to punch them in the face? He says, but wait a minute. If I forgive them, they might get converted to Christianity and never go to hell. He said, I think I'm going to punch them anyway, <laughs> just in case they get converted. I thought, that's how most of us feel. If I give them over to God, he's probably going to forgive them, and they're going to end up in heaven with me. <laughs> or maybe you don't forgive them, and they end up in heaven, and you don't. Please understand, I am trying to be silly a little bit, but it's heavy. It's a heavy thing. Because most of us inside, there's a default setting. If you hurt me, I want to hurt you worse. Because I want you to know you can't hurt me like that again. And to think about forgiving is hard. Please understand something. Forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. Reconciliation requires them to know what they have done. You see, trust is not a faith issue. Trust is a performance issue. When people have destroyed your trust, when they have proven through their actions and stuff, and you have knowledge of their defects, their weaknesses, of their, um, you know, their tendencies and everything, then you cannot deny that knowledge. Jesus himself said, I did not entrust myself to all men because I knew the hearts of all men. So we're talking about wisdom when it comes to reconciliation. And, our, and, and a lot of you wives, you understand this almost intuitively because when your husband does something this big against you and then says, I'm sorry, you know it's only that big. And if what you've done is this big and all you reconcile is that much, you know they'll do it again. Okay, so we, we all understand. And, and if we're being honest, we understand trust is based on how people have acted. Okay, so reconciliation is far harder than forgiveness because forgiveness is not for them. Forgiveness is for you. It's so that you're free with God. It's so that you're okay, that there's no, there's no blockage in the intimacy between you and your God because if you've been forgiven, then your default setting with everybody who hurts you has to be forgiveness. Or you have a bad perspective, and somehow you think your sins are little sins, and their sins are big sins. And if that's true, then you're just, you're just messed up. You're just not seeing things. What Jesus has paid for you makes it legal, makes it right, makes it an ability to forgive those who have hurt you. But again, I, I say this to you, you are forgiving them for your sake. They may never even know what they've done to you. And some, some of the people you often need to de- forgive are often dead. And so you can't be reconciled to them because they're gone, but they're still hurting you. And so Jesus is our, he's our legal, he's our substitute, he's our, 
are, are one that we look to and says, as I have been forgiven, so also I forgive. And, and if you say to me, and many have said this to me, well, I'll forgive them if they say they're sorry, then you'll still be on the hook. Listen, Jesus didn't wait to go to the cross till he said, well, I'm going to wait till they say they're sorry. Romans 8's really good at this. It says, God commended his love toward you while you were yet a sinner. Christ died for you. So, in a way, restoration does not come until you forgive. Not because God doesn't want to restore, but because you've blocked it. Well, I love the aspect of the fact that everything that Job gets is a double portion, but he doesn't get there by magic. He gets there by a very, very powerful series of understandings that God gives him about himself, about life, about God. See, no matter where you are, whether it's New York or the Middle East, the wicked still prosper. No matter where you are, the righteous still suffer. And so Job was still at this place of saying, this doesn't seem to be fair. See, if God's first set of arguments came from nature, and God's argument was, Job, did you, did you form the earth? Job, did you birth the seas? Did you swaddle the seas in clouds? Job, do the lightning bolts answer to you or me? And you know what Job's response was to that? It was, it was, a, it was a, a valid response, but he just said, okay, God, I'm going to shut up and I'm not going to say anything else. But see, that wasn't enough for God. He didn't want just Job to shut up. He wanted Job to encounter him. And so God came at him with a second round of arguments. And the first thing that he did, one of the first things that he did, is he said, okay, Job, I'll give you my job. Okay, Job, make the, make the proud man and bring him low, take him low. In a sense, what God was saying is what is in that movie, Bruce Almighty. And from now on, the voice of God in my head is Morgan Freeman. <laughs> Originally, it was James Earl Jones, but now it's Morgan Freeman. When I hear from the Lord, sounds like Morgan Freeman to me. All right? But... Can you imagine God giving Jim Carrey any responsibility whatsoever? And yet, that's the gist of this movie. If you haven't seen it, don't. But if you have, <laughs> unless it's free, you'll never get those two hours back. Uh, but it's an interesting movie in this. This arrogant man says, I could do a better job than you. And God said, okay. And he gives, him a, he gives him everybody's prayers. He gives him all the issues. He gives him everything. And he realizes, I can't handle any of it. And so part of what God does is he allows Job to see how complex and complicated it is to be God. And so then he takes it another step. And this is where I think it gets really powerful. God starts to talk about two creatures that are not of this world. Um, they were laughing at me because I can't seem to say this, they're behemoth, and they wanted me to say bohemoth, but, uh, but uh, I think I learned it from some English guy. So uh, the bohemoth will say, 
and the Leviathan are both mythical creatures. They're not, they're not in nature. I mean, sometimes you could see a big elephant, but it's still not what he's talking about here. Or, or the Leviathan has some crocodile-type characteristics, but it's not a crocodile. As a matter of fact, it's kind of a storybook creation. And God begins to talk about his, his relationship and his dealings with these mythical creatures. I mean, and it's used in poetic language in Job. It's used in Isaiah, Psalms. It's even, we see it again a little bit in the dragon in Revelation 9 and Revelation 20. You see it somewhat in Genesis 3 when Satan is in the form of a serpent. There's almost this kind of mythical, even sort of a polytheistic language that comes from a polytheistic culture. And when, when God starts to talk about his dealings with the behemoth and he, his dealings with the Leviathan, when God starts to talk about this, something happens and Job grasps something about God and changes his whole view of God. So I said, well, that's probably important. So here's what I believe and what others have come to believe, why God talks about the behemoth and why he talks about the Leviathan. The Leviathan is a picture of Satan himself. Just like the serpent in Genesis and the dragon in Revelation. Here, when God begins to speak about Satan, he uses this language of a Leviathan. And then he talks about death. See, again, something bigger than life, something supernatural, something so big as to be feared by every culture and every generation. A behemoth, the death. Well, why does he talk about that? Well, because a behemoth cannot be tamed or controlled by us. A Leviathan cannot be caught on a hook. If you did, you'd be, you'd be sorry, in a sense. So in uh, chapter 37, 10, he's, God says this. He says, but who can stand against me, says the Lord. See, in a way, it's not wrong of you to be respectful about death, even fearful about death. There's some sense in which I deal with people all the time who are far more afraid of Satan than they are of God. Because they are stronger than you are. You know, there's no way that you can take on any of this kind of supernatural forces of evil. There's no hope that you're going to have success by yourself. Let me just talk about these two for a second. You understand that every single fear that you have, the root of that fear is your fear of death. I mean, you might say, well, I'm afraid to go over a bridge. Well, why? Because you're afraid you might die. Why are you afraid of the future? Because of death. You know why people are workaholics and driven and try to be special and everything? Because they believe special people don't die. So if I'm special enough, God won't ever take me off of this earth, is the way, is the way people think. And it, in a way, if you really understand your fears, you'll understand that if you overcome the fear of death, you won't be afraid of anything else. But if you never face your fear of death and the unknown and the life after death, if you never face that, then every fear you have has power in your life. It's a root. So God's saying some things about death that Job catches a hold of. But Satan himself is explained, or the work of Satan is explained in this Leviathan creature. It's kind of a sea creature, saltwater creature, but most people 
attributed it to looking like a crocodile. And if you ever watch a nature program, a crocodile is one of the most intimidating creatures in nature. And the way that it kills and the way that it overcomes its prey is in many ways through intimidation. Because what, uh, and chaos and creating fear and chaos. Because what it does is it has these, these long kind of teeth that when it opens its jaw, it can latch onto your flesh. Now, it doesn't just rip the flesh. It begins to use all the strength of its body to churn and to turn. And you ever see the, the prey that a crocodile has? It makes everything around it afraid because the water's churning and twisting. And there's this, you just have this incredible intimidation that goes on with this thing. And what, what God is saying is that a lot of our fear comes from our feeling of intimidation from Satan and his threats and his accusations and his temptations. And we begin to believe that we are overcome by this monster. But God says this. These are my creatures. Luther, Martin Luther had this really pithy statement. He said, even Satan is God's Satan. So basically what he's saying to Job is that the eternal son of God, Jesus himself, is going to, and now we look back on how our Lord Jesus Christ has defeated both death and Satan. Now what Job got from the beginning is he said, oh, wait a minute, I've been afraid of death. God is over death. Death has a master, and his name is God. I've been afraid of Satan. I've been afraid of the Leviathan. I've been afraid of this twisting, churning, chaotic creature who seems to only want to do me harm. And I've been so afraid of him. And yet, even he has a master. And that master has spoken to me from the storm and says he loves me. It's a matter of perspective, you see. If I... I'm intimate with the storm that's the true storm, then the behemoth and the Leviathan are nothing. So righteous Job then began to experience blessing because he got it. He began to repent of his, his small view of God. In a way, if, if I could get you to understand this, Every day for the rest of your life, you would say to God, God, my view of you is too small. You're the real storm. Not my relationships, not my work, not even my health, not even the future. Even, he's saying, he said to Job, even if you're facing death, I'm the master of death. Even if you're facing the, the most wicked, supernatural, evil enemy of all time, I'm the master of Satan. Everything changes. It's, please, I believe in spiritual warfare. I believe in dealing with Satan face to face. But I really believe, friends, that unless you know who the real storm is, Satan will always scare you. Until you realize his master is my master. He hates him, but he loves me. Well, Job begins to experience blessing because he's ready for blessing. He's proved through the trial that he loves God for God, not just for what God could do for him. And once Job loves God for God, 
then God can pour out blessing on Job. Here's what I'm saying to you. When you have been tested, and in the midst of that testing, in the midst of what appears to be a storm in your life, and you say, wait a minute, I know a bigger storm, and he's on my side. And when you're in the midst of it, and you go, like Job went, though he slay me, I will hope in him. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. See, what Job maintained, and what he, he saw all the way through his trial was really simple. He said, I came into the world with nothing. I will leave the world with nothing. Whatever I have in the middle is the grace of God. So that when God gives, he's to be blessed. And when he takes away, because it's his grace, not law. It's not a salary. It's not what I deserve. It is out of his graciousness that he both gives and grace when he takes away. And my soul will say in the midst of that, because I love him for him. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Because I still have my treasure if I've lost everything else. Because I have him. I still have what's ultimate because I still have him. And and see, once that is your rock-solid heart commitment, then money can be given. Relationships can be given because they aren't your treasure. Because you become nothing more than a steward, not an owner. You begin to say, these are part of the grace of God. It's not my salary. It's not my savings. Because my treasure isn't in the bank. Are you hearing me? See, James puts it this way. He goes, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth? being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains, you also be patient. I would guarantee you before I finish this thing, he's going to say patience a few times here, right? And what do most of us say? I'm not a patient person. And yet, what does the Lord say? Be patient. Notice how you become patient. Establish your heart. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another. Brothers, so that you may not be judged, behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. I believe the double portion really is the compassion and mercy of the Lord. Here's what he does for Job. We're going to wrap up our study with these three things. He humbles Job. Okay, Job was a great righteous man, but Job did not yet know the depths of the humility that he needed. Please listen to me on this. Do not, do not deaden your heart because you've suffered loss. Do not listen to those who say you're too sensitive, you're too emotional. Be emotional. God is not content that you love him with your mind. He wants you to love him with all your heart. And those of us who are your neighbors want you to love us with all your heart. Not just your mind or a concept of love. And you cannot love if you have a dead heart. 
People who are numb are not numb from joy. They are numb from pain. They don't want to feel. So if you don't want to feel, you'll never know love. It is a risk. You might get hurt. No, you will get hurt. Do not deaden your heart. Don't deny your pain. You see, you will never have healthy grieving if you immediately go to complaining and blaming. Complaining and blaming are conclusions about your pain. They are not dealing with the pain. Dealing with the pain is something like, this hurts. This is painful. I feel sad. I'm going to ask all the men in here. I want to hear it from men for just a minute, okay? I want to, see, I want to hear this in a manly tone, all right? I feel sad. We're going to have to work on that one. <laughs> you still sounded angry. <laughs> Others said, man, I feel sad. <laughs> it's one of the hardest things for us. It's so much easier to deny the pain and go to blame. Deny the pain and go to anger. Because I feel more powerful. But in, hear me, then you're only protecting yourself. And you will hurt those who didn't even hurt you. You know, don't, don't let this happen to you that you try to rise up and make yourself tall. When you are bent, bend low. Let yourself be low so that he can lift you up. As long as you defend yourself, you have an idiot for a lawyer. Don't stand shaking your fist. Those people who shake their fists at God, they're saying you're incompetent. You're telling the storm that he doesn't know how to be a storm. Don't bargain with God. You have nothing to bargain with. But don't shrink back. If you look in the whole book of Job, he has nothing to bargain with. But he stays in the fight. All the way to the end. And in the end, he experiences acceptance and justification. Let me tell you, when you're accepted, nobody can shake you. When you know that you've been proven right in your faith, nothing can shake you. Do, please hear me. This is your only chance to give God the gift of your faith. When you see him face to face, it will not be faith. It will be sight. Job held on and God spoke. He sees not the words of people, but the heart behind the words. And only a lover of God can speak the words that God longs to hear. God spoke over Job words of dignity. God called Job his servant, his, his accepted, his loved, his, his beloved servant. He loves to speak these kinds of things over us. Now, I don't, I've already gone the length I should, but I want to just say this one last thing. The end of Job is a picture of the new heaven and the new earth. It is not going to be wispy clouds and you sitting on a cloud and playing a harp in a thin gown or something. Do you know what it says here? When God restores, he restores double of what you've ever had. And it's so interesting. There's a detail in the restoration where he gives him three beautiful daughters, but it, the Hebrew word there is basically drop-dead gorgeous daughters. 
I'm like, why is that there? You know why it's there? Because inside of you, there's a longing for beauty. Inside of you, there's a longing for what's real. And what Job shows us is God has a plan for you in the new heaven and the new earth, and it will correspond to the glimpses of beauty and joy and peace and longing that you have right now. It will not be a disconnect. It will be the most connected thing you have ever experienced. Will you stand with me? Hear me in this. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children, that's you and me, share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things that you have been through, that through his death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. I want you to take your hand, and I want you to point, not at any person in front of you. This is you. And I want you to see... The behemoth against you and the Leviathan against you. Okay? All right, you remember what those are. Behemoth is death and Leviathan is Satan. So against you is uh, the two things that you really actually fear the worst. An evil enemy and death itself. And I want you to say this with me, okay? Behemoth, I know your master. He loves me. me. I no longer longer submit myself myself to fear of you. you. I reject you. you. How's that feel? See, uh, what I'm saying is you have to not passively receive this. You have to actively stand up. Because this thing still thinks you're superficial still believes that if he can get you by fear, he can control you. All right, let's do it to Leviathan. Ready? The ways that Satan has come against you to twist you, to churn, to steal from you, to tear you apart. Stand up to him right now. Leviathan. Leviathan. Satan. Satan. I renounce your hold over me. me. You have been defeated defeated. by Jesus' death by his resurrection resurrection. he is my master he is is your master master. and you no longer have have the power of death death over me me. Lord will you seal what you're doing right now that like Job we might stand up to the behemoths in our life and to the leviathans in our life. We war not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. You have defeated death. We receive your victory now. In Jesus' name. Will you remember this for me, please? Go home then. No. Uh, now we have... We have some prayer uh, ministers who are here. They want to pray with you up here. It may not be enough just for you to do this with us right now, but, but to come with someone else and say, I want to I come against the behemoth. I want to come against the Leviathan in my life. Our prayer people will help you with that right now. We don't want you to leave here without victory. God bless you. We'll see you next week.